If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided let's give them a call. Welcome to the Calling History Podcast. Welcome back to part two of Edgar Allan Poe. In the last episode, Poe finished telling us how popular his detective stories were and how people were saying it's an entirely different genre of writing. He also talked about the raven marrying his 13-year-old cousin and his relationship with alcohol. In this episode, he'll talk about the pit and the pendulum, the madman narrator in the telltale heart, and what is happening behind his stories that people miss. Many people are talking about that this is an entirely new type of story and one that they've never read before. It's very adventurous. It's not grim at all. Yeah, which is incredible because in our t- that story right there is known to start that whole genre of a person using deductive reasoning to solve crimes and using his intelligence and using his instinct. It inspires all kinds of writing after that on that exact topic. And so in your time, that wouldn't have been normal. That's not something that everybody's writing about? No, no. I mean, people write about crime. That's common. There was a very famous crime that happened in the state of Kentucky that actually made the papers for a while in which a young man and a woman were involved in a murder-suicide that was straight out of the pages of Shakespeare. It was very Romeo and Juliet. And I wrote a story which wasn't very popular that was based on that crime too. So uh, writing about crime is very, very common. But Writing a story in which the reader is taken along this journey to help solve the crime, in a sense, uh, that then you're taking the place of the narrator walking alongside Gauss Dupin, that's a completely new format, and it seems to be very popular. So when you had challenged me and said, why am I calling your stories grim and all that, I understand what you're saying, because when you look at this, this is a totally different genre. And then you go into the future and you look at that uh, that treasure story, The Gold Bug. The Gold Bug, yes. This is about pirate's treasure. Yes. That's actually one of the first stories that had any success. Um, When I published it, it was for a, well, when I submitted it, I should say, it was for a newspaper contest uh, for short story, and it won $100. That was quite a son of of money. The story, it's adventurous. It takes place along the seacoast of America in some areas where I had been stationed in the army. And I introduced a new idea into that one as well. I love puzzles. I love puzzles and ciphers, you know, ways to code language and code meaning that other people wouldn't be able to read. And so in that story, I introduce a cipher for the characters to solve. And that's one of the reasons why the story did so well and was so recognizable too. And then actually, when I've gone on to write for literary journals, I introduced uh, for the first time into the papers puzzles for readers to solve, codes for them to break, and I encourage them to send me codes as well for me to try to break too. And these puzzles have been very entertaining and seem to have inspired people to copy that as well and to produce that in their own papers to encourage more readership. Where do the puzzles and codes come from? Is this something you did in the military? Were you a code breaker? 
Well, I, that wasn't my job, but that is something that uh, in the military is absolutely required. Uh, it's been incredibly difficult to figure out how to pass along information across enemy lines uh, in a way that only your contacts are able to read. And so that's something that was talked about constantly and is being developed even now. And so I was intrigued by it. It was something that uh, even in West Point would be talked about too. And for me, though, I just found it entertaining to play around with this idea of how to break these codes, and even wrote up a little treatise about it, which uh, seems to be quite popular in the military as well. It may even be a handbook in the Navy on code breaking. But I, when I brought it over into the papers, it was for entertainment purposes only, just a challenge for readers. But people seem to like it. Yeah, that's a lot of fun. So to go further with this, where I'm saying that some of the stories are grim. Okay, then we go to stories like The Pit and the Pendulum. Where some guy's trapped in a hole and he's trying to escape this swinging blade. There's something grim about that. When you go to the story of the telltale heart and you've got this person, this narrator that just doesn't like this guy's eye and then basically decides that he's going to kill him and then bury him. And to say that there's not a grim side or a, a side that relates to death and the macabre in your stories, I mean, that, that exists, doesn't it? Well, let's be specific here. So, have you read The Telltale Heart recently? Not all of it, no. That seems to be a very shameful admission. Okay, so, <laughs> if you haven't read it recently, and if it has only been introduced to you as this grim and ghastly story, it's easy to miss the humor in it, and that's one of the reasons why it was popular. Now, okay, to be fair, uh, when I was originally trying to publish it, the publisher pushed back and said that it was too violent, uh, and that the public wouldn't like it, and I told the publisher, that's exactly what the public likes. The public likes a really thrilling story, and violence makes it that much more entertaining depending on how you write it. And I was exactly right. It was very popular. But talking about the story, in the story, the narrator, again, this is a narrator telling you the story from their point of view, and it may be a questionable point of view, but there's a line in it that says, talking about the old man who he eventually kills and cuts up and puts under the floorboards, he says, I was never kinder to the old man than during the whole week before I killed him. <laughs> okay, wait a minute. Catch everybody up. Tell them the story of the Telltale Heart. Okay. Give them a summary of it, because that's a big statement to make for a lot of people that wouldn't, wouldn't even know what this is. Well, I think that they should be completely familiar with all of my stories. But for those who haven't read it, in my short story, The Telltale Heart, it's told to you by an unnamed narrator. And the narrator is sharing a house with an old man. And I don't go into details because, as I stated uh, earlier, you don't need every single detail to get across a feeling. You just need to get the right feeling across. And the narrator has become obsessed. And he's obsessed with the eye of the old man that he describes as blue with a film over it, like a vulture's. And so within his obsession, he decides that the only means of freeing himself up from this curse of this eye is to, and I'll quote myself on this one, take the life of the old man. And thus rid myself of the eye forever. And so he goes throughout the story explaining to someone very specific, probably, that these things are necessary. Of course, if he could only just explain himself a little bit better, then 
you would agree with him. Of course, this is the only action to take. And he looks in on the <laughs> old man every night for seven long nights in the middle of the night, poking his head into the bedroom with the lantern all closed off. And then finally, on the eighth night, he accidentally makes a mistake. He makes a short little noise and the old man wakes up. And so the narrator leaps into the room, murders him by smothering him under the bed. And then to cover his crime cuts off the old man's head and his arms and his legs and jams all of those body pieces under the floorboards, having cleaned up afterwards. And then he's visited by the police because a neighbor had heard the old man scream in the middle of the night. But at all points, the narrator is absolutely sure that you would just agree with him, that you would understand him completely. And there's so much humor in that. Of him, I guess you're right. Yeah, repeating over and over again that he's not mad, no matter what you may say. And bear in mind that it's not you, the reader. There's another you in there. That of course he's not mad. These things are just understandable. And that's the humor is to keep reading that and knowing what you're leading up to, which is this terrible murder, and eventually his break into madness when he can't keep it together anymore and he finally falls apart at the end so it's both thrilling and shocking and frightening and humorous there's no reason to limit yourself to one of these ideas as long as they all fit together to give you the final impression of entertainment or of release or of a little bit of a scare because that's enjoyable sometimes I totally see when you first said there was humor in this, I had no clue what you were talking about. But now I see what you're talking about because the audience is listening to this guy tell the story of obviously I just got to kill him. And of course, now that he's dead, got to put him under the floor. And the audience is just going to be, how does he not realize he's crazy as he keeps telling us he's not crazy? Exactly. That's exactly it. And if you're only reading it because you think that it's going to be just dour and grim and violent, it's very easy to miss those jokes because I was careful in writing them. I'm not going to point out a joke that kills the joke. You have to have that humor as a natural part of the story. And you should read my stories as if they're meant to be entertaining because they are. That's the entire point. Do you think that your humor is different than most people's? I don't think so. I think I recognize complexity in humor. Jokes are fine. You can see wonderful actors on stage telling wonderful jokes, but there's ways to incorporate humor and all of those feelings in a more complex way because that's what humanity is. We're complicated. We're not just one thing. Nobody is just frightening or sad or happy or loving or lonely. We're complex and art should reflect what it is to be human. Boy, I get that. So you had said when you were talking about the narrator, you said that he was talking to someone specific. And then afterwards, you said you used the word you and, or who he was talking to. And I can't remember exactly what you said. Can you expand on what you meant by that? Well, so in some stories or in some poetry as well, uh, there's a feeling that a narrator is talking literally to you, the reader. And sharing a story the way a friend might sit next to you and share it. And that's perfectly fine. I wrote stories like that as well. Uh, the Raven is a wonderful example of that, in which there's no definition of 
who is being spoken to, but that it would be like having a friend talk to you and detail this moment or this dream in their lives. But in other stories, and Tell to Heart is a good example, and even so is the Cask of Amontillado, it's a little more specific than that. So in the Telltale Heart, the narrator starts out by saying this line. So I'll repeat it for you if you haven't read it. This is the start. True. Nervous. Very dreadfully nervous. I had been, and am. But why will you say that I am mad? Now, that line, true, is the first word. That's a response to a question. And then why will you say that I am mad is a response to a statement. But you, the reader, didn't make that response, correct? Yeah. So who did? Whoever he's talking to. Himself? Nobody? Oh, you can do better than that. Be, be a detective. Pay attention to the context of this. Why will you say that I am mad? Who, in their capacity professionally, would call someone mad? I'm stuck here. A psychiatrist? What's a psychiatrist? A doctor? Oh, there we go. A doctor might do it. Perhaps even the police would do it. Ah. The narrator is explaining his actions to someone meaning he has to explain his actions to someone. So who would require his actions to be explained? A doctor, perhaps in a madhouse, or a police officer getting a confession. True. Nervous. I had been and am. But why will you say that I am mad? That's a very specific statement to make. And that's understanding that that is responding to an unheard question and an unheard comment that you, the reader, my audience, has to fill in on your own if you're paying attention. Jeez, you really got to pay attention to what you write. That is a fact. Like anybody that sits down and tries to read what you're writing and think they can read it and do something else at the same time, they don't have a chance. I think that if you're going to experience art, if you're going to experience poetry, you're going to take whatever works best for you. But It's entertaining. It takes time to write. It should take time to read. And you Mm. should take some time and enjoy it and have the fun of having this moment with a piece of art that is speaking to you after apparently a very long time, I guess, after my death. Let's talk about money for a second. (laughs) One of your favorite topics? An an ongoing, nonstop topic. Okay. So when you talk about money, at least my understanding is you definitely did not get paid in proportion to what you gave for your work. Absolutely. Because had that been the case, you would have been a very, very wealthy man. But it seems to me the only time that you had any money would be when you were living with John Allen and maybe a little bit of money when you were at West Point. But outside of that, were you not broke most of your life? Well, when I was living with John Allen and when he was still being uh, responsible as my foster father, it wasn't just money. It was wealth. Let's be very clear about this. This was wealth. And to have lived in a wealthy household and then have that taken away from you is incredibly shocking. For the rest of my life, I was trying to support myself on my writing. When I left his house, I was destitute in Boston, and I was taking just day jobs as I could doing manual labor. And it was someone who knew me at West Point that helped me get a position in which I could write. And then there were times in my life 
life, especially after the publication of The Raven. But there were times, many times, where I was consistently working on literary journals, uh, being an active critic, uh, writing my literary criticisms, publishing works as I could, and making what money I could, and slowly being able to support my family. That's one of the reasons why we ended up moving so much, was that it was necessary to try to find the best place in America to be a writer and to find the best paying job. And I even was successful enough to be able to take over a journal that I had wanted to run on my own for quite a number of years as an editor, uh, because that's where the real money is if you're running it and not spending every single day writing, but to take on other writers and then be able to publish on my own as well. But it was just difficult. And I did lose a job here and there, and I did have difficulty in maintaining any sort of income, and we've been well acquainted with poverty over the course of our lives. But that wasn't consistent. That wasn't every single year. There were times when there was work to be had and recognition for my writings, but never what I really deserve. I mean, that's never an artist's life, is to be paid what you deserve for your art. I don't know that poverty is ever a good parent for a successful artist, considering that there are other artists and writers who have some lovely incomes, both from family <laughs> or from work, and they're doing quite well, and they're well-recognized. <laughs> they're working through the pain of having money while writing. Exactly! And they have no problem at all. I think that there's a lot of romanticism being made about a struggling artist, or a starving artist, or whatever you want to call it, and thinking that, oh, that's exactly what they need to be able to produce their writings. And all that's doing is keeping them from producing their writings or their artwork or their poetry. I think there's a little too much romanticism on that end. Yeah, I think you might be right. Why are you known for being such a mean critic? <laughs> <laughs> You're laughing like you know exactly what I'm talking about and maybe you even like it. Oh, I am recognized as a, not a mean critic, but a very accurate critic. And so, to be very clear about this, poetry never paid the bills. It's always been hard to be a poet. And so when I've worked on my journals, on literary journals, one of the works is to read uh, all these other writers that are out there and to talk about what you think about their works. I mean, this is quite common. And so I was been very clear about what I think about other writers and what I think about their writings as well. And I am considered to be a very entertaining critic. And mm -hmm. on every journal that I worked on, I have increased its readership and increased its circulation, largely in part due to the literary criticisms that I say about other writers. And some of them took it quite well and understood that this was constructive and other ones, not so much. <laughs> oh, one of the uh, editors that I worked with said that in my literary criticisms that I write with a pen dipped in prussic acid. Uh, and I believe someone else called me the Tomahawk Man for cutting down other writers. But I wasn't necessarily, as you would say, mean to them. There are writers that I quite like. Charles Dickens, again, I loved his writings. Very clear about that. Hawthorne, I actually think he's a very good writer. I was critical of a few things in there. But I think he's a very good writer. Uh, Washington Irving wonderful writer, very well respected by our generation of writers and absolutely necessitary to be able to reach out to him and have recognition for your work. I mean, he is the father of the American folklore tradition. And so there's lots of writers that I enjoy just because a few people get angry about. It. It's not my problem. Well, I know that this, I know this English was somebody that you didn't like necessarily. Are there other writers or criticisms of them that you're especially proud of? 
Yes, absolutely. So you are familiar with my fellow writer, Nathaniel Hawthorne, correct? Yes. Oh, okay. So he is well-known. So I reviewed his story twice told tells uh, that he had published. I stated that with rare exception in the case of Mr. Irving's Tales of a Traveler and a few other works of like cast, we have no American tales of high merit. So again, I'm recognizing that Washington Irving is well known, but that there aren't that many other writers who are rising up to be recognized as great American writers. But I stated that of the twaddle called tale writing that we have had, perhaps more than enough, we have had a superabundance of Rosa Matilda effusions, gilt-edged papers all cooler de rose, a full allowance of cut-and-thrust blue-blazing melodrama dramatic schisms, nauseating surfeit of low miniature copying of low life, much in the manner and with about half the merit of the Dutch herring and decayed cheeses of Van Tussel. But I stated that Mr. Hawthorne's volumes appear to us misnamed in two respects. In the first place, they should not have been called Twice Told Tales, for this is a title that will not bear repetition. If in the first collection of edition they were twice told, of course, they are now thrice told. May we live to hear them told a hundred times. See, I'm being very positive. In the second place, these compositions are by no means all tales. The most of them are essays, properly called. It would have been wise if their author had modified the title so as to have that reference included, and this point could have been easily arranged. So, I worked in praise and some criticism with this. Hawthorne got a little problematic at times, but still, I was very positive about what he said. And actually, I have a different example for you that might be a little bit more particular for what you're looking for. Yeah, go ahead. So, after The Raven became popular, I was asked to read it in public uh, and to talk about my theories of prose and poetry. And I actually appeared in Boston to a huge crowd. I think it was something like 2,000 or maybe even 3,000 people in Boston to read The Raven. But at that time, I decided that I was going to introduce everyone to my poem, Al Al-Raf, which I wrote when I was 14 and very proud of. I think it's an excellent poem, especially for a teenager to write. And so I was sharing that poem and... People started to get up and walk out, so I had to switch over and do The Raven. It's always the popular one. And so the next day in the papers, there was an article written about me by a writer, a woman writer, Mrs. Walters. And she defended my poem, Al Al-Raf, as being juvenile. And uh, this is what I wrote in response to her in the papers. Miss Walters defends my poem as being juvenile, and I think the more of her defense because she herself has been juvenile so long as to be a judge of juvenility. Well, upon the whole, I must forgive her and do. Say no more about it, you little darling. You are a delightful creature, and your heart is in the right place. Would to heaven that I could always say the same thing about your wig. <laughs> that was how it ended? Yes. Oh, very nice. Did you have an issue with Boston at some point, too? Well, Boston had an issue with me. Uh, it wasn't so much the other way around. I was born in Boston and was, well, at least acknowledging of that fact at first. But later, I didn't receive the best reviews from Boston critics, and they were always so tied up with all of their other ideas and all of their other local writers that I just decided that I was done with the city. And so I was quite critical of it on a number of occasions. At least I did get to go read The Raven there. So there was that. But I criticized a lot of the people there all around Harvard as being the frog pondians. You know, they have the frog pond there. And they used to just <laughs> sit around and peep, peep, peep and croak, croak, croak at each other, praising each other for all of their writings and so on. And then just ignoring the real artists that were out there. But that's their problem. It wasn't my problem. 
Well, clearly it's their problem. It's weird that you're born in Massachusetts, in Boston, and somehow they don't make you a hometown favorite. I find that odd as well. I hope that changes someday. Yeah, maybe so. Maybe so. So you had mentioned that the editor makes the real money. Mm -hmm. And you were talking about that job where you were an editor at some point. Do you have the temperament to be an editor? Well, I think so. Uh, To be an editor, you have to be able to recognize good work, and you have to be able to recognize good writers. And I think that I'm quite good at that. And I may have burned a few bridges with other writers with my criticisms of them, but still I encouraged a number of poets and uh, a number of writers that they would send me in their works to review. And so as an editor, you have to arrange all that. And then you also have to have the ability to keep that machine going of publication, because there's quite a lot to worry about. I was working for a while as an editor on one of the journals when the owner had stepped away for a brief vacation, and he came back and found the place in disarray because I had taken to drink for a while. The stress had gotten to me, and he asked me to step away from the job for a while. I did come back for a brief period of time and continue writing for him, but he'd lost a lot of trust in me, so I moved on to other writings. But I did get a lot of work done on the journals that I was working on and had very good prospects for continuing my work on literary journals and being able to finally start my own for a long period of time. Is this when you, uh, you've said this many times that you got fired for being drunk. Is that when you got fired for being drunk? Yes, that was the time. In working on the journal, I had neglected my duties for a bit. And it was just difficult to keep up with. And so I had turned back into drink, as the case is. But it didn't help, too, that the uh, editor was a complete teetotaler, and he considered drink to be just an absolute sin. So he had a lot of moral judgments in there, too. Oh, I see. But I did was able to patch it up a bit with him. It's hard to get along with those people that aren't thirsty, as thirsty as you are. I don't know that I would call it that. I think that I'm just quite friendly uh, okay. when drinking, as some of my friends have stated, uh, that we would share wine together, and that seemed to be that I might even have a bit of an allergy to it, that it doesn't take much alcohol at all to get me completely out of sorts. Boy, I'm with you right there. A drink or two, and like I'm done. I am just not a good drinker. Absolutely. Not everyone has the same capacity. And for at least a few people, trying to have some sort of safe drink or some sort of safe time to celebrate together can be challenging. And that does seem to be the case for me. Was there a time when you applied for a job with the president and showed up drunk? I don't know if this is true or not, but that's what I heard. Yes, I'm surprised that you are knowledgeable of this incident. But yes, I had learned that there was a possibility of receiving an appointment in Tyler's administration and that I had some contacts uh, as well. And so using some of my friendships, I was able to get a meeting for an interview for a position, but it was very difficult to get the timing right. And they kept canceling the meeting and changing the time. And so when they told me that they were going to be able to receive me, I had already spent a few extra hours at the local pub. And so the next day when I showed up, I was described as being very disheveled and out of sorts. And they didn't continue the meeting at that point. They did give me a chance to come back and meet again, but I think that that bridge had burnt as well, and so I never received the appointment. So in our time, there are lots of photos of you. A lot of times they're of you with ravens in the background, and it looks like you have dark black hair, and you have a mysterious, eerie sort of 
look. And yet, when I was doing a little research on you, it appears to me that in your youth, that is nothing like what you were like. My understanding is that you were very athletic and good at sports and very active. Is is, is that true? Yes, absolutely. I actually was a very strong swimmer as long as I was at West Point as well and got along great with my fellow cadets and participated in some of our little dramas that we put on. I think that acting probably runs in my family. So yes, I don't understand why anyone would think that you're just one thing throughout your life. Maybe it's just because if you're very good as an artist, you get so identified with your work that that that's the defining part of your entire life. But I got along with my classmates uh, back at the university. We gambled together. We drank together. And even my fellow cadets, when we would run into each other over the years, even though I left early, uh, we were still great friends and had wonderful times together. What is the deal with the gambling? Well, I'm not very good at it. Tell me what happened. I mean, did you get way in debt? Is this something that everybody is gambling a big thing when you're in school? Yes, absolutely. That's exactly what happened. So when I was at the university, bear in mind that this isn't just taking classes, correct? If you've not had a chance to go to higher education, it may seem from the outside that it's simply academia nonstop. It's not just taking classes, but especially it's for finishing a man and getting them ready to go out into the world. And so all of we young men who were at university were all from very rich Southern families. We were the aristocracy. And so we did what our fathers did, or foster father, is that we acted as they did. So not only were we doing the business of academia, but we got together, we shared drinks together, we gambled at cards, very common to do, and that's what our fathers did. And when you gamble, you gamble seriously, and we all came from very rich families. And so, Uh. yes, exactly. So we gambled with real money at amounts that anybody would be able to easily take care of, any of our fathers at least, and not very good at gambling as it turns out. And so I racked up quite a number of debts, and I did as any young man would, who has a very rich foster father, I turned to John and I asked him to cover my academic debts, which he did, room and board and books and so on, which was expensive, but then also to cover the gambling debts too, as all the young men did, and that's what he refused to cover. And you had to pay those back as going to be a personal problem, and that's why I had to leave. This makes a lot of sense. I've been wondering why you're racking up these gambling debts with money that you don't have, and it's because... You're in school thinking that you're rich, not realizing that your foster father, who's trying to distance himself from you, is thinking, you're not so rich because I don't even want anything to do with you for whatever reason he decided that. So when you went to him and said, hey, I need some money to cover these gambling debts to you, that would have been no different than saying, hey, I need some money for food or books. It would have been no different. Is that right? Exactly. And Mm. it wasn't that I was thinking I was rich. I was rich. I was his son. I was part of the family. He was paying for my education. That's exactly what was expected of us. We were supposed to be uh, on campus. We were supposed to be 
sharing these times together and gambling was how you did business. That's how our fathers all did it. They went to the pubs afterwards or to their little social societies. They sat around, they drank, and they gambled. And that's what we did. And all the other fathers paid off their son's debts. And John Allen went on to pay off his illegitimate children's debts. He just chose not to pay off mine. Did he go mad or something? Because there's in a lot of your stories, you talk about people going mad. We were just talking about the the guy who's trying to explain to everybody that he's not that he's not mad, and I I don't understand why John has these illegitimate children that he supports, and I then he has you know somebody that he voluntarily chooses as his child, and. He chooses not to support you. Did he? Was he losing it? Was he going crazy? No. Uh, unfortunately, I have to say that he was quite clear-headed in his treatment of me. Had he been going mad with any of the diseases that might cause that, at least he would have an excuse. When he passed away, he actually died of dropsy. It wasn't anything affecting his brain at that time. No, he was just—he was just more proud of his natural children. I would call them than his hmm. foster child. As far as madness showing up in my stories as a theme, it wasn't that uncommon of a theme in this day to use as a motivation for narrators or for action to take place. I would assume, though, with new sciences that it may be defined in more specific ways other than just the broad category of madness. But it offers an opportunity for an artist to explore the darker parts of the human psyche and of human life. You mentioned that he was more proud of his, they would be biological children of his, even though they were illegitimate. I wonder if he had been unable to have children, and you would have been his only child, if your situation would have ended up completely different. That, I think, is very possible, considering that it wasn't John Allen who was the one taking me in. It was Frances, his wife. She was the one who wanted me as a son, and she was the one who never gave him natural children. And she was the one who started to become ill when we were overseas in England and that he started to lose interest in at that time. And he must have been planning a new family all along, one that he could call his blood children and not this child brought in from somebody else that he seemed to be proud of for a while, but the moment that I just decided to be my own person or to be a teenager, then that seemed to be when he started to turn against me. In our time just recently, there has been a production that has come out, and of all names, it is called The Fall of the House of Usher, which by the way is a great title for a story. I love that. Well, anyhow, this story is actually, that they put out, this production is actually several different stories, and they all seem to have something to do with different stories that you've told. Like one is one part of the story is actually has something to do with the fall of the House of Usher, the your story. But then another story has something to do with Black Cat, and each of them have a little piece. And so they basically had taken your work and adapted it and turned it into something a little different. You'd recognize pieces of it, but it's certainly not just your work. Have other people done this with your work, tried to adapt it? Do you have any feelings about that? Well, my first reaction would be that they owe me some money for that and that <laughs> plagiarizing my work is illegal and would require some legal action as well. But since that doesn't seem to be available to me in this format as we are discussing today, I'm honored 
that any other artist would be inspired by my works and that uh, in the same way that I'm inspired by other artists' works as well. But if they're adapting my works, that means that it's their own story and that they're taking elements that they might find provocative or interesting or personal to them and adapting it into their own particular format, their own particular art, in much in the same way that I have adapted other people's works as well, like I mentioned Charles Dickens's works. But that story then is their story, not my own. And so if you enjoy it, I would encourage you to enjoy it for its own merits. If you particularly like my stories, it may be extra entertaining for you, but it should be enjoyed on its own merits, not as my own work. So you, you have you have an appreciation for people that adapt but not steal. No, absolutely not. Ugh. I got into it with Longfellow for a while, and I loosely accused him of being a little overly inspired by my poetry, but I wasn't specific enough. Uh, and so there was uh, quite a lot of threats of legal action around Hold there. on. Are we talking – when you say Longfellow, we're talking Henry Wadsworth Longfellow? Oh, you know him too. Uh, everybody loves him. You got into an argument with him? Yes. And he's just a poet. So, yeah, I like his works. I mean, I think he's quite accomplished. Uh, but I wrote in a review that he seemed to be overly inspired by my own works and that that could be considered a type of plagiarism as well. Has anyone ever accused you of plagiarism? Well, there's a lot of accusations going here and there around plagiarism. One of the earliest works that I had an opportunity to make some sort of living on as a writer was actually I was asked to write a new edition of a school book of a science book on shells on conch shells and so I rewrote with a full understanding of the editor the original publisher and the original writers and so on I took the existing academic book about the study of shells of conch shells as part of nature studies of natural philosophy and science and I rewrote it, and I reordered how the book had originally been written to order these shells, and I introduced some better ideas than what the original writers had used. So instead of just focusing on the shells themselves, I thought that from a scientific standpoint, or even from a theological standpoint, it made sense to pay attention to the living creatures that were in the shells. And so I rewrote the book, and this was published as a textbook for science education, and did quite well. But as any writer does with these sorts of textbooks, you're taking existing work, correct? And you're rewriting it, you know, sure. for a new edition. And so a few people wanted to talk about that that was some form of plagiarism, but that's actually not the case. I mean, that was just rewriting an existing work in the science field based on other people's work. And it was very clear that there were previous editions of this textbook out there. So I don't understand why everyone got so excited over that one. It's not like I was plagiarizing entire ideas and saying that they're my own. It's not like they invented the shell and you're stealing their idea. Or not like they're inventing the textbook and I'm stealing the textbook. <laughs> I <Right>. actually <laughs> made it better. That, I think, is important to note, that I rewrote it and made it a better science textbook. Again, which it's, it's not just being one type of writer. You write, first off, where you can make the money, and you also write what you can write. And I was also good at writing that. Yeah, which goes back to what you were talking what we were talking about adaptation because it is one thing to steal it's a, it's another thing to have a, a stool with three legs and say, you know, if we put a fourth leg on this this thing's even sturdier. Absolutely, and that's also engineering and that takes a scientific mind. 
Yeah. Well, I have enjoyed this conversation so much, and I do have a few more questions. I hope you're okay, but I just thank you for all this time. I, this was nothing like what I expected. I knew that you were a complex person, but I didn't know it was complex to this level. I really didn't, and it's I've really enjoyed this. So I'm going to ask you a few more questions if I can. In two of your stories, uh, two that come to mind, there's the one, uh, it was the story about the Red Mask. Uh, the Mask of the Red Death. The Mask of the Red Death, yeah. There's and a there pun the there, th- by the way. What is it? You don't catch it? <laughs> catch me up. Keeping up with you is not the easiest thing. <laughs> I am disappointed in the state of education in your time. So you claim, at least. In Mask of the Red Death, do you notice how it's spelled? With a Q? Yes, M-A-S-Q-U-E. Now, we would pronounce it mask in the same way that we might have C-K due to the uh, influence of the French and the English and so on. But a mask, an M-A-S-Q-U-E, is a ball, a party. And so the mask of the Red Death is not just talking about a mask that one might wear on their face, but it's also about a celebration, a party. And so if it's a party or a ball of the Red Death, then Prince Prospero's ball that he throws for all of his uh, chosen... All the nobles. Yes, exactly. The nobles, the chosen survivors of the plague (laughs) is not Prince Prospero's mask. It's the Red Death's mask. So there's a pun there. At least two puns. Ah, that's interesting. Well, in that story, there's the clock. And it seems like everybody reacts strongly to the clock when the clock chimes. And then when we were talking about the story, I think it was the Telltale Heart. Is that the the guy with the eye? Yes, correct. Okay. Did he not also hear a clock? think that he heard his heart beating and thought it was a clock oh a watch a A watch much such as a watch the sound much such as a watch makes when a belt and cotton is there something with clocks and watches and time that you're trying to say by putting these pieces in your stories well if you're familiar with my body of work there's multiple symbols that show up multiple times Uh, on the one hand any poet or any artist might find symbols that they find particularly useful that show up. So a clock and a watch and so on uh, would commonly be used. I know that some critics have stated around the Mask of the Red Death that the clock is symbolic of life ticking away. And in the case of that story, everyone's life was slowly ticking away. In The Telltale Heart, the clock or the watch is not treated so much as a timekeeper as it is a sound effect. Because that story is just like my poems. It has its own beat to it, its own rhythm of slowly and slowly and carefully and carefully and louder, louder, louder. That is a beat in the words that's just like the beat under the floorboards as well. And so in that story, the watch is not so much symbolic as it is thematic and related to the sounds that the narrator is either hearing or is hallucinating as well. You might get more out of looking at body parts as a theme in stories. Eyes show up quite a lot in my works as well. The eye in the telltale heart, the raven has eyes like a demon, or even in uh, like my story Bernice, teeth are used um, as a form of obsession. And so if you pay attention to my body of works, you can see these themes showing up over and over again that I think are quite useful to use. They're tools, tools of a writer, tools of a poet. How do you feel about women? It seems like you have a tremendous amount of respect for women, and it seems like you need them in your life to function. I think that would be a common 
idea. I wrote in my essay around prose and my essays around poetry that uh, the most inspiring thing in the world was the death of a beautiful woman. And people seem to take that as very shocking, but they don't get the rest of the line that it's not the death of the woman that's inspiring. It's the feelings left behind. It's that feeling of loss and grief left behind in the people who are lost without that person in their lives. And in my life, I've lost a lot of people. I lost my mother. I lost my foster mother. I lost my own wife. And I mean, afterwards, I felt so alone. And I had an opportunity to rekindle a relationship uh, with a young woman who I knew when I was a young man uh, back in Richmond. And we were able to strike up a friendship again. And so I uh, dedicated a poem to her. I uh, talked to her. We have been discussing the possibility of coming engaged and being married again. And having that love in your life, I think, is important. I think anyone would agree with that. Is it true that after the death of Virginia that you'd slept in the cemetery or wandered around the cemetery? or I just heard something about this. I don't know if any of it's true. Well, there seem to be quite a number of very dramatic stories being attached to my life. Losing Virginia was devastating. And her mother and I had to lay her to rest in a pauper's grave. We didn't have money for clean sheets on her bed. But I cannot say that I slept by her graveside. It sounds like people may be mixing up my artwork with my life again. I mean, the final stanza of Annabelle Lee is, And so all the night tide I lie down by the side of my darling, my life and my bride, in her sepulcher there by the sea in her tomb by the sounding sea. And I'm glad to know that that is such a striking image that people might think it may happen in real life, but that's not something I can agree with. Okay, so I have three questions left. The first one is, do you have a favorite piece of work that you've completed? Yes, absolutely. Now, of course, The Raven is very popular, and that brought in so much fame for my works. I have to recognize that. But just recently, I finished an epic prose poem by the name of Eureka. Have you read it? No, I have not. Oh. Eureka is one that I truly feel that I could die happy, having finally got it out there into the public. It's not a traditional poem. I can attest to that. It doesn't follow the type of complex symbolism that you might find in The Raven. But in Eureka, I'm applying my knowledge of science, of engineering, of astronomy, and addressing questions that we have about the start of the universe, about how the planets interact. Uh, one of the major questions that we're dealing with that you may have solved in your time is how is the universe formed? Did it come from a starting point or has it been this way at all times? From a theological view, this is very different depending on what you're coming from versus a scientific view. And in my poem, in my prose poem, I address the idea that there's a question if it had been this way all the time, or for a very long time at least, then why isn't it daytime at night? Because at night, you would have starlight coming in from all over the universe hitting the Earth, and that would be as bright as day, correct? Yeah. So it's a bit of a paradox. And so if it isn't daytime all the time, then the reason for the darkness of the night is that 
I propose that stars themselves that are providing light, just like our sun, are so far away from us that it might actually take time for their light to reach us. And in between us and those sources of light could be other celestial bodies, some sort of dust or matter in the way that would absorb that light too. And so this would point to an idea that the universe has not been unchanging, but that it has a vast distance to it and a vast amount of time associated with it. And that leads to the possibility that it also comes from one moment, one star not just this unending, unchanging clockwork universe that some people seem to think of. And that could answer the possibility of why there is not light 24 hours, but that there is actual darkness. And I apply that within the format of poetry in Eureka. It doesn't have the rhyming scheme of nevermore and so on, but I'm quite proud of it, and it seems to be getting some attention. That big moment, the start of the universe, does that have a name in your time? No, I in uh, my response to it, I give it the idea that it could be this one tiny thing in the idea that the universe is a somewhat mirrored and that the universe itself may have a timeline or a lifetime in almost the same way that a person does of starting very, very small and then getting very, very big and then slowly dying off at the end because it seems like there's a beginning and an end for everything in creation. Even your cycle of the universe, you tie to this concept of death and decay. Well, it's inescapable. It is. You're right. I'm definitely going to read Eureka, by the way. Oh, I can't wait to read it. So we have talked about so many of the, what I call these themes that a lot of people will say that you follow. And now I, I see that you're an astronomer as well. Uh, there is just no end to how far you can stretch your brain. But you have talked much about death and decay, and there's some reincarnation. There's some people that have been buried under floors. I think there was a story, somebody may have been buried in a wall. I might be wrong. Uh, the black cat, yes. Yep, yeah, that's right. Person buried in a wall, and along with the cat that was in behind the wall. Yes. And then I look back to when you were talking about how that one editor was saying that your story was too violent. You said, no, 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 it's not too violent. That's what people want. Mm -hmm. And you're right. People do respond to all of that. They love it to this date, everything you've written. So what is your impression of people? What is behind the mask, the M-A-S-K mask that the people wear? What's really going on behind the average person? In my story, The Man in the Crowd, I write from the point of view of an observer along the lines of Auguste Dupin, who's paying attention to all of the faces in a city, of all the people going back and forth, and living their lives. And in the particulars of that story, uh, the narrator becomes most interested or even obsessed with one man who doesn't seem to be part of that daily to and fro of life and starts to follow him, trying to find out where he's going and what his plans are. To be an artist or to be a poet is to be an observer of life and of people and to understand that people want the same things no matter what time they're in whether it's a hundred years ago before our country was a country, whether it's a hundred years from now, I don't think that humans really change. And people want love. They want to know that they're cared for and that they're accepted. They want to be respected. They want to be entertained. They want to forget for a while 
all of the bad things that might be happening in their life. I mean, that's why actors go on stage. It's to entertain people and to have them forget things. But it's also to do what all artists do, which is take the worst parts of life and transmute them into something different, into gold from lead. And so if you're going to be an artist who's going to speak for hundreds of years to an audience, you can't write about uh, the things of your day that are only apply to your day. You have to write to what it means to be human, because humans don't really change, not since the Bible, not since Shakespeare, not in my time. Humans are afraid, and they're afraid of darkness, and they're afraid of death, and we all know that's coming, and sometimes it's right in front of us. But if we can be entertained for a while, there's nothing wrong with that. And if we can laugh at somebody else's misfortune, in a fictional way at least, there's nothing wrong with that either. And if we can find love, then that's one of the best things in the world. And it's awful when it's gone, but even that can be inspiring. How would you like to be remembered as an artist? I would like to be remembered as a poet. I would like to be remembered as a great American poet equal to someone like Percy Shelley or even Lord Byron. And someone who created art that means something to everyone. I think that's how I'd like to be remembered. Mr. Poe, I thank you so much for all of your great thought-provoking work. And I can't imagine what the world would be had you never lived and, and taken the time to, to prepare all that for us. Well, thank you. I truly appreciate that. And it's good to know that even if this is just a product of my own ego and a fitful sleep, that at least some sort of recognition is out there for me. It definitely is. Thank you again. Thank you. It's amazing that Poe was able to write anything at all. I mean, his mother dies when he's a child, and then Francis Allen adopts him and dies also. After being left without a mother twice, his father abandons him, and then his wife dies. It's no wonder so much of his writing is about death and decay and madness. He was surrounded with all of these his whole life as he watched himself decay from the alcohol abuse. And yet, even though his tales were often dark, as he described in The Telltale Heart, or The Red Mask, where Prince Prospero is basically deciding who will survive the plague by being invited to his party, Poe was able to laugh at the absurdity of life and add comedy to what otherwise would have been seen as reprehensible. I have no doubt that Poe was going to be a writer regardless of his circumstances. But had things been different, had his mother, the actress, lived, might he have been writing something completely different? Maybe more upbeat? Had his father loved him and his writings, and had his wife lived, would the darkness inside of him be unavailable, making it impossible to create the raven, black cat, or the red mask? Maybe his pirate treasure stories would have been the bulk of his writings then. Maybe he would have written more thought-provoking works, like Eureka on the creation of the universe. If he had not experienced so much death and struggle, it's likely that the tales we love so much would have been written on a totally different subject that we might have enjoyed just as much because truthfully, he was that good. Thanks for listening. If you subscribe to the Calling History Podcast, we will send you a virtual high five, which it's basically like a real high five, but without the risk of awkward hand collisions. I'm Tony Dean, and until next time, I'm history. History.